0: In a mere two weeks, the fifth major conflict in the past 15 years between Hamas and Israel became its most catastrophic. It began with a massacre of hundreds of Israeli civilians and hundreds more Israeli soldiers. According to Security Insight, which tracks attacks on health care, since the conflict in Gaza began, 40 health workers have been killed including four Palestinian Red Crescent Society paramedics in one airstrike. Fourteen hospitals have been damaged, two of them twice. The violence against healthcare facilities, patients, and health workers is not new to Gaza. There's another dimension to this conflict. The evacuation order by Israel for more than a million people living in northern Gaza included people in hospitals. The World Health Organization has said for the 2,006 and injured patients in those hospitals, the order amounts to a death sentence. Why has there been so much damage, death and injury to healthcare workers and facilities in these conflicts? Urban combat alone cannot account for the sheer number of attacks on healthcare in Gaza.
1: That was Leonard Rubenstein, Distinguished Professor of Practice at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He was reading from his recent First Opinion essay on why healthcare workers and facilities in Gaza face so much violence. After a break, I'll bring you our conversation about Gaza and practicing medicine in a conflict zone.
0: Right now. Millions of Americans are making important decisions about their healthcare coverage for next year. United Healthcare offers a couple tips to help you during this open enrollment period. First, don't overlook specialty benefits like dental, vision, hearing, or wellness programs. Many health plans now offer incentives for exercising or for not smoking, and many Medicare Advantage plans offer gym memberships at no extra cost. Second, check your prescription benefits. Filling prescriptions at a participating network pharmacy or with home delivery may help you manage costs and get the most from your prescription coverage. For more tips, visit UHCopenenrollment.com. Welcome
1: to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stats' platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Welcome, Leonard Rubenstein. Thank you for being here.
0: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: Now, I should note for our listeners that we are recording this on the afternoon of Monday, October 23rd. This, of course, is a story that is changing by the hour, so there may be other relevant developments by the time listeners hear this, but we're going to be as up-to-date as we can be during this conversation. So, you gave a really great overview of where things stand, but, you know... For those who haven't been able to keep track of exactly what's going on, can you summarize what's happened in regards to attacks on healthcare in Gaza most recently? What are you keeping a close eye on right now?
0: Since the conflict began, uh, Israel has uh, conducted airstrikes amounting to 6,000 bombs dropped on Gaza. To provide some context for that, in Afghanistan, on an annual basis, about 6,000 bombs were dropped uh, in in that conflict. So here in uh, under two weeks, the same amount of bombs have been dropped in a very, very small area as in Afghanistan. That is one reason why the damage has been so considerable. And the question is, Has Israel complied with the laws of war in this context? Israel has a fairly checkered record in uh, health care during war in Gaza over the past 15 years. Uh, Over the period 2009 to 2015, the World Health Organization reported that Israeli missiles, airstrikes, and tank assaults damaged or destroyed more than 200 facilities and more than 150 ambulances. And we've seen a similar pattern in a very short time in this conflict. And added to that, the cutoff of electricity and water in Gaza means that the hospitals are operating without the necessities they need to function and treat people. So, the cutoff of basic necessities has added to an already terrible healthcare crisis there.
1: Now, you mentioned international law. What does international law say about what responsibilities are to protect healthcare facilities and workers during conflict?
0: The protection of healthcare under the Geneva Conventions goes back more than 150 years. In fact, the very first Geneva Convention in 1864 focused exclusively on the wounded and sick in war and on their caregivers and facilities uh, where they're treated. And over the decades, the protections have expanded. We all know that attacking healthcare a hospital or a health worker or an ambulance deliberately is not only unlawful under the Geneva Conventions but a war crime but the conventions go far beyond that they require precautions in an attack even if the object is a military one so for example uh, if uh, there is a uh, a known, group of civilians in the area around or in the target building or facility, the attacker must take steps to minimize harm to civilians. It must provide warnings. It must change the kinds of weapons used, if necessary, to prevent uh, disproportionate harms. And the gain in military uh, uh, benefits and strategy from the attack has to be proportional to whatever harm there is to civilians. So these are very tough, strict uh, rules, and they go far beyond the prohibition on targeting hospitals, ambulances, and healthcare generally.
1: Now, your first opinion essay was written a few days before a major blow to the healthcare system in Gaza, which is the destruction of the Ali Arab Hospital in Gaza City. I think much of the discussion has been focused on who is to blame. And I think that makes sense, of course, but I want to focus on what the destruction of a hospital means during conflict. So at the risk of of asking what may sound like a really obvious question, what happens when a major medical facility is no longer available to people on the ground?
0: I think it's important to understand first that during war the number of traumatic injuries among civilians, whether by accident or deliberateness or intent, Skyrockets, and certainly that has happened in Gaza. It's happened in Ukraine, it's happened in other places. So, all of a sudden, the demands on hospitals are overwhelming. Uh, In one of the major hospitals in Gaza, Al Shifa, uh, there were 800 or more people in the hospital with a very small capacity. People had to be um, housed on the floor, even though they had terrible injuries. So that's one impact, and it's a major one in the short term. Uh, But in the longer term, in the intermediate term, uh, people who need care for chronic disease, for example, dialysis uh, and many other conditions, childbirth, uh, gets impaired by the damage to the hospitals and the demands for priority for the extreme injuries that people present with.
1: I think I read somewhere that uh, an estimated 50,000 pregnant women are in Gaza right now, and I can't imagine what medical care is like for them at the moment.
0: Yes, it's unimaginable. And one of the consequences of these attacks on hospitals, and we've seen this in Syria uh, and other places, uh, there's a lot of evidence, and it shouldn't surprise anyone, that when hospitals are attacked, people are afraid to go there. They're afraid that they're targeted, uh, even if they haven't been. Uh, there and so they don't go in Syria, for example. Uh, other other consequences of of uh, the attacks on hospitals were evident in patient behavior, for example, and and medical staff behavior. For example, cesarean sections went up because doctors wanted to get people out of the hospital as quickly as possible, and the patients wanted to get out. So we have these uh, cascading impacts, uh, both on hospitals, on the uh, ability to provide health care, and uh, on patient willingness even to come to the hospital because they're too dangerous. And you end up with these terrible decisions of balancing the risk of going to the hospital with the risk of not going for medical reasons.
1: And I think it's worth noting too that this is a healthcare system that, even before the recent conflict, was was really, I would say, in crisis. You know, how has the occupation affected healthcare there generally, outside of specific acts of violence?
0: The history of healthcare in Gaza is a history of multiple uh, disabilities. I already mentioned the past assaults on, on infrastructure, which had a dramatic effect on. Uh, hospitals and other healthcare facilities to function normally. On top of that, there's been a blockade of Gaza for many years, and although there there are supposed to be exceptions for medical and humanitarian supplies, some are considered dual use is, could be used for uh, military purposes, so it's very hard to get those supplies in. On top of that, it's extremely difficult for people to get out of Gaza in the best of times to get medical care that Gaza can provide, for example, by going to the West Bank. There's a complicated permit procedure, it's very bureaucratic, and uh, there are many permit applications that are denied. So, healthcare in Gaza has been uh, at in difficult straits for many, many years. And this just adds to uh, that catastrophe.
1: I want to take a step back now and then we'll return to Gaza. You're the author of a book titled Perilous Medicine, the Struggle to Protect Health Care from the Violence of War. How did healthcare in conflict zones become an area of expertise for you?
0: I had been working at Physicians for Human Rights back in the 1990s, which is a medically based human rights organization. And it was one of the only organizations to look at the problem of attacks on health care in conflicts. And we issued many reports, one in Bosnia, one in Kosovo, one in Chechnya, in the wars in that period. And I was involved also in uh, an investigation in, during the second intifada in 2002 about uh, attacks on ambulances and killing of paramedics during the second intifada. So there had been a history of the organization that I worked for uh, doing these investigations, but I felt that no one was paying attention. Uh, It didn't get attention from UN agencies, including the World Health Organization. There was no accountability. In fact, there was complete impunity to these attacks. And I felt something more had to be done. Uh, So about 10 years ago or so, I started trying to influence uh, uh, the international community to do more and to press for stronger accountability uh, and for more regular tracking of what was going on. The episodic episodic reports that came out from my organization at the time, as well as uh, others, uh, weren't enough, and there has to be a regular collection of data in, in public health we basically say uh what is measured gets done and there was no measurement here so nothing got done
1: and you know i think now there's a lot more attention being paid to this you know i saw um, that you were in the new york times over the weekend talking about a uh, conflict the conflict in Ukraine and talking about Gaza, um, there's a lot of attention being paid to Sudan. Do you think people are starting to care and collect this research more than they did when you first started this work?
0: Over the last decade, there has been a great deal of attention to this problem. In 2016, the U.N. Security Council passed its first resolution on this problem on violence against health care and conflict. And the member states of the UN made commitments to take concrete steps, such as reforming their military practices, insisting on investigations and accountability, and changes their laws to make sure that they were acting in accordance with international law. And there has been much more documentation. I mentioned at the very start that Insecurity Insight is tracking these attacks. The World Health Organization has a system to do so as well, although it's far more limited. Uh, But the real problem is the attention to date has been rhetorical by and large. Resolutions, condemnations, speeches, commitments verbally. But there hasn't been action. There's still impunity. There are no prosecutions to speak of. Uh, and even uh, the most mild of the uh, of condemnations are often defeated by political powerful, politically powerful perpetrators like Saudi Arabia, for example.
1: And I want to get back to the accountability question in a minute. But first, you know, one thing that you talk about both in your book and in um, your first opinion is that you asked this question, which is, why has there been so much damage, death, and injury to healthcare workers and facilities in conflicts in Gaza? And you came up with what you think is an answer. Can you walk us through that?
0: Yes, I mentioned that I was in uh, the West Bank and in Israel in and- 2002 during the second intifada when many ambulance workers were killed and I looked into that issue and 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 at the time and we demanded there be a change and many others did as well and what happened was not the result of our efforts. Or necessarily, it was really the result of advocates and human rights groups in Israel, that the military and political leadership in Israel at the time believed that this was a major problem. They didn't want their soldiers killing paramedics, and they reformed their procedures. And there was a, a procedure that it for a time worked, and that meant that when a Palestinian ambulance wanted to enter uh, a conflict area to evacuate a wounded person, they went to the International Committee of the Red Cross as an intermediary, which contacted the Israeli military. The military then would give permission, and that was sent back to uh, the Palestinian Ambulance Service, and in the ambulance would go. And at the time of the Intifada, it wasn't working, but the reformers changed and made much more rigorous the procedures. And there was a commitment to obey, and that was transferred down the line. And for a while, it really worked. But then, in we go fast forward to the wars in Gaza starting in 2008, uh, the politics of Israel moved to the right. There were campaigns against human rights organizations that reported on violations of the law in war of war uh, in Israel, and there was a lot less interest in protection of healthcare, particularly of Palestinians in uh, health. And so the rules stopped being uh, followed, and we saw horrific incidents in Gaza. I mentioned one where an ambulance was authorized to go into Gaza uh, with three people three paramed- two paramedics and a driver and even though they had been approved for entry uh the uh, IDF uh, defense force Israeli defense forces shot at them uh one of the medics was killed two were injured but they managed to get away a second ambulance was authorized to enter, and that ambulance was shot at too. And that kind of conduct is not only inexcusable since there was approval and notice of the presence of the ambulance, but uh, it appears from my research that what happened was a result of much looser rules in the field, that while there were formal rules of engagement uh, of this, of which protection of ambulances were a part, uh, commanders in the field had a lot of discretion, and basically soldiers had a quick trigger and were authorized to have quick triggers. Uh, uh, One one soldier said, whatever gets in your way, shoot regardless of the humanitarian consequences. That was the instruction he got during the 2008-2009 war. So... I think we can make an analogy here, that when the political commitment wanes, uh, rules, uh, compliance with rules similarly wanes. And as we've seen many statements from Israeli officials, including the defense minister and the energy minister, uh, basically saying uh, in so many words, we're going to destroy Hamas, we're going to get the hostages out, which of course... That is warranted, getting the hostages out. They shouldn't be held. But we are not going to respect Palestinians. We are not gonna worry about how many Palestinians are hurt. And I think that attitude is directly related to efforts to comply with the law.
1: I think one problem with especially with what's happening in Gaza but in other places is that, you know, During a conflict, it's very difficult to get reliable information, right? We noted in your piece that there was one piece of information that was impossible to verify. You know, what do you make of the way that opposing sides seem to constantly debate the most basic facts on the ground about healthcare?
0: Well, we had uh, an instance of that last week. Uh, with the terrible destruction or damage to the hospital in in Gaza, uh, with hundreds of people likely killed, and each side blamed the other, and in all of the the actions, it's very hard in the moment to assign responsibility. For example, when I talk about precautions, we have no idea what precautions the Israeli military has taken in most of the attacks. The sheer number of missile strikes and airstrikes uh, raise questions about whether they even had time to to take those precautions, but we don't know. And, and so what needs to happen is investigations. On the other hand, the number of civilians killed and injured in in gaza to date raises really serious concerns that so many people were killed in in attacks even if they were directed at uh military targets like hamas cells or firing spots Uh, and that itself kind of raises the stakes and what the importance of getting information as quickly as possible to uh, to understand how these deaths happened, what precautions, if any, were taken, and what should be done about it.
1: Yeah, I think in the past just few days, we've seen um... Trucks with aid begin to arrive in Gaza on a very limited basis. Um, I would imagine you think that's only the start. What would you want to see happen right now to support healthcare in Gaza?
0: Well, in the pro- problem of humanitarian aid, uh, another aspect of the Geneva Conventions is that Humanitarian aid must be allowed in. There can be conditions to make sure there are no weapons or other forms of controls for security, but it has to be allowed in. One of the hallmarks of this conflict goes beyond humanitarian aid. The cutoff of water, the cutoff of food, the cutoff of electricity is not about allowing humanitarian aid in it's about allowing basic services that pre-existed the conflict and could continue without any humanitarian aid if it were permitted and i think that is a very major issue uh, to address Uh, it's not been well explained by israel why that was done uh but you can understand when you think about health care and people's health, uh, the short, the shortage of clean water in Gaza is has the potential of causing major disease and of many different kinds. Uh, the shortage of electricity means that hospitals that were not damaged can operate without fuel from generators. And that fuel is being blocked as well. So that's why this situation is so dire. It's not just the damage to hospitals from the airstrikes and and missiles, but from the other aspects of, uh, of denial of basic equipment and supplies and utilities for health.
1: Now, I want to shift back to the question of accountability. So, you know, you mentioned that Israel has been checkered on following the Geneva Conventions and certainly Russia in Ukraine has been as well in terms of, you know, following the rules on healthcare. care. Um, what do you think needs to happen, you know, maybe not immediately, but in the months and years to come, to stop targeting of hospitals?
0: Many steps are needed, but on the subject of accountability, I mentioned there wasn't any. We've had international tribunals now going back to the mid 90s, uh, and now we have an international criminal court. And there is no major case that has ever been brought in any of those tribunals about attacks on healthcare. There was one case in Bosnia where, among many, Uh, other uh, points of evidence for indiscriminate bomb uh, shooting in the city of Sarajevo from the hills around it. Uh, An example was uh, firing at a hospital. So that's the only thing we've got. It wasn't a count in the indictment. Uh, It wasn't a separate case. It was one piece of evidence in another case until that changes there'll be impunity russia has acted impunity not only so far in ukraine but in syria uh, but and in chechnya where hospitals were targeted or fired at indiscriminately and russia's not alone Uh, uh, another example is saudi arabia which has uh, which in the war in yemen Uh, didn't bother to take the precautions required uh, in its targeting from uh, jet fighters flying around, and uh, in the end, uh, attack uh, hit a lot of civilian facilities, including hospitals. In other words, they didn't take the precautions. And in one development, uh, there is a special procedure in the UN to call out violations of uh, against children, and one of them is attacks in schools and hospitals. And there's a list that the Secretary General of the UN prepares every year of uh, perpetrators have, that have uh, taken these actions repeatedly. And Saudi Arabia was going to be on the list and lobbied the UN saying, we're going to cut off all our support for humanitarian aid if you put us on. And that's the kind of political interference we've seen with even the mildest form of accountability. In Ukraine, there at least is a possibility of accountability because the International Criminal Court has taken jurisdiction of the case. And there are local prosecutors who are working to develop war crimes cases There. So we're hopeful that at least in Ukraine there will be some accountability. But to date, uh, there hasn't been any. And that is part of the problem. And if I can add one other thing, I mentioned the Security Council resolution uh, in 2016. There has been no compliance with that. Almost no countries have done what that resolution called for and what they committed to.
1: Is there anything that the U.S. can do? you know, to encourage accountability? Is the U.S. standing in the way of accountability in some ways?
0: As in so many areas of human rights, the United States is on both sides. <laughs> on the one hand, it's a staunch defender of the Geneva Conventions. And recently, it's been very aggressive in in uh, calling out Russia and is actually providing technical assistance to the International Criminal Court Uh, to develop cases. Uh, On the other hand, it fought the uh, International Criminal Court is not a member. Uh, It has protected Israel from accountability at the Security Council, not necessarily on issues relating to the International Criminal Court, but even in condemnation. And it hasn't gotten its own house in order. I mentioned changes in laws and rules of and training of soldiers, uh, it hasn't done any of those things with respect to um, how it handles uh, health care protection. And that's particularly disturbing because there was a time when one particular commander in Afghanistan issued an order uh, that was directed at at protecting hospitals and patients within those hospitals from violence. and It was very effective. So it's got a model, but it hasn't been followed up in terms of policy or training or doctrine.
1: Given everything that you've seen, are you optimistic about healthcare in Gaza becoming in a better position or in more accountability worldwide in this sort of thing?
0: Uh, Talking about uh, this issue is very much like talking about uh, other human rights, whether it's free speech or prevention of torture or women's rights. All around us, we see horrific violations all over the world. And we also see impunity in many places. What we don't see is the cases where things actually change. And fighting human for human rights and fighting for protection of healthcare means you're against very powerful forces, and many times they don't want to comply for a whole lot of reasons because they don't care or because it's too hard or inconvenient or whatever reason they have. Uh, you just have to keep pushing, and so it's to me, it's not a matter of. Uh, optimism, but the extent to which this struggle for protection keeps going, that we expand the constituency of people who demand protection and can force people in positions of power to obey the law. Uh, So that's how I look at it.
1: And how do you stay, you know, how do you keep doing this work when it's so difficult?
0: You know, uh, people ask me that all the time. I bet. And here's what I say. In this field, for the reasons I just explained, we lose most of the time. But sometimes we don't lose. And that makes a lot of difference in people's lives. Working with people who are themselves subjected to these violations is very rewarding because We sometimes can succeed in part or even have major victories. So we can't give up any more than we can give up on other human rights.
1: Leonard Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining the First Opinion podcast today.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you for listening to the First Opinion podcast. Our producer is Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is executive producer. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show and who should be on it and what topics we should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion@statnews.com, at statnews.com, and, you know, maybe even think about leaving a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself.